Uh, it is uh, my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sunil Chilikuri, who specializes in surgical treatment of skin cancer and subsequent reconstructive plastic surgery. Dr. Chilakuri is fellowship trained in advanced dermatologic surgery and Mohs micrographic surgery, the highly specialized treatment of skin cancer, providing cure rates of up to 99%. He has served as a professor at Yale University, Columbia University, and Albert Einstein College of Medicine, teaching dermatologic and Mohs surgery. Since recently returning to Houston, Texas, he teaches at Baylor College of Medicine while also running his private practice office, specializing in Mohs and cosmetic surgery. And today he's going to talk on the 21st century alternatives in the treatment of skin cancer. Please welcome Dr. Chilikuri. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Gary. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics, and it's nice to be back in California. I trained out here in plastic surgery originally and then moved back to Houston, Texas for uh, dermatology training and then moved to the East Coast uh, to New Haven where I did my Mohs Fellowship. And uh, I had a private practice in New York, so we've seen kind of a, a various gamut of patients and patient populations. Uh, being back in Texas, it's good to be in the South. and. Uh, I guess it's good to see a lot of skin cancer, unfortunately, for the patients, but we are able to treat them. A lot of times when we see patients come into our office for consultation, this is what I think they're looking at. They look at my books and they say, can this guy actually do what we're talking about? So I keep all Mohs for dummies in my office. The importance of skin cancer is that there's 2 million new cases a year is what was estimated in this past year. Of that, you can see the comparison against breast cancer numbers where there's only approximately 183,000 new cases per year. The lifetime risk for most Americans is about 20%. And skin cancer itself accounts for approximately 50% of all types of cancers. Mortality, luckily, is not as high as some of these other tumors, although melanoma is the seventh most common uh, cause of, of death. Our cost is significant. Basal cell carcinoma accounts for the majority of these skin cancers, accounting for approximately 75% of all tumors. Squamous cell accounts for another 20% is the second most common and accounts for approximately 200,000 cases this past year. The cost is staggering. We're looking at approximately $1 billion worth of expenditure from insurance companies and Medicare this past year. So and that's why if any of you guys have heard your physicians or yourselves are personally billing, you see the re reimbursements going down. Right now, Medicare has a big piece of the pie, and, uh, and dermatology seems to be taking more of that pie because there's so much growth in this, in this area of skin cancer. The most common areas, of course, as you know, is the head and neck area, accounting for 85% of all skin cancers. And of those head and neck cancers, 25% occur on the nose. Let's talk a little bit about some of the traditional techniques. Most of you all probably do this yourselves and, and may do it in conjunction with your physicians that you work with. There's cryosurgery, there's EDNC, we talk about regular surgical excision, we talk about Mohs micrographic surgery, and let's also talk about some of the future. What are some of the things that are coming out on the market? What are some of the things that have been out on the market over the past few years? In terms of cryosurgery, you all know what's going to be treated is this liquid nitrogen spray, and basically what it's doing is cooling the cells below the, the epidermis to negative 50 degrees Celsius. As it cools down, those, the water inside those cells, it bursts, and then that'll allow the, the cell, uh, cellular DNA to come in and repair everything. EDNC, been used for years and years and years, for more than centuries. 
And the nice part about this, it's very effective. And people ask oftentimes, well, you're in most surgery, why wouldn't you just cut everything out? There's great areas to do this, the EDNC on. In fact, on, uh, on Wednesday before I left town, we had three patients that we did EDNC on the upper back, on the non-hair-bearing portions of the, uh, of the arms, and it works well. As you know, with curatage, you're going to actually spread it from east to, east to uh, west and then north to south. You're going to do it approximately two to four millimeters around what you can see with the visible tumor, and you can feel that difference. Then you're going to perform electrodesiccation, approximately one millimeter around that surrounding rim that you see then, and then you're going to repeat this approximately three times. One of the ways to increase the cure rate, this is non-published, it's actually in a, in a study that's being done right now with myself and, and three other centers, um, is to either use liquid nitrogen or use liquid nitrogen in combination with Aldera immediately following the EDNC. And that Aldera can be used that evening. And we think it's just to get, now that the Aldera can penetrate down into where that tumor site is, it'll be able to bring in the cytokines and, and uh, destroy the rest of that remaining residual tumor. So you can see a diagram here. EDNC is definitely operator dependent, as is any surgery. The most common mistake is not going wide enough. And if you compare private practitioners versus the residents that are able to do this, you'll see that the cure rates are very different. In private practice, the cure rate is approximately 94.3% versus 81.2% for residents. And the most common reason for that is people are not as aggressive and they're not going as wide. You do have to be careful in certain areas, especially in the leg or in, in thinner parts of the body, where you can go invade into, into the fat. If you do have invasion into fat, typically I recommend to most people that you convert this into an excision. It takes a longer time for it to heal, and sometimes there's residual tumor that's left within the fat. So as you can see, cure rates can be as high as 90%. In certain areas, in certain sizes of tumors, whether it's greater than two centimeters, whether it's in uh, the hair-bearing areas, whether it's on the face, head and neck areas, the cure rate may not be as high as this. A Salache uh, published a study in 1982 that showed that 30% of the residual tumors are located in the nasal and nasolabial folds. And these are also the embryonic fusion plates, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And the most common areas that they're seeing is the periphery of the defect, as well as the deep dermis. Let's talk about general excision. I'm sure that most everyone here in the office, uh, in this uh, auditorium has done at least a general excision or watched a general excision. And what's done is typically you take four to five millimeters around what you can see with the naked eye, you cut it out, and you put a few stitches in. This is well used and well versed for any well-defined tumors, anything that's less than two centimeters in size. And one of the things to remember is there's a minimum size that you're looking for. In the past, in the, in the mid-90s, early 90s, and uh, uh, even up to about 98, people were thinking you only had to take about two to three millimeters around what you can see with the naked eye. What we see more recently is you really need to take a minimum of four millimeters around what you can see with the naked eye. In certain uh, histological subtypes, even this is not going to be enough, and those are include morpheiform uh, and, and uh, more invasive type basal cells. So that's where we're talking about the histological subtype. This is where it's important to know what type of tumor you're dealing with, and that's usually seen on the pathology report. A lot of times in my office, I actually request the slides or I ask if I can see the slides myself, because even though something may be classified as a nodular tumor and you think it's not going to be a very aggressive tumor, you can go ahead and cut it out, when we actually do the most stages, you do see about 20% of these tumors have more invasive type uh, pathology, including infiltrative or morpheiform basal cell. So the five common types you already know, 
Nodular is going to be the most common of, of representing approximately 60% of all basal cells that are treated. 15% are going to be the superficial basal cells. The more aggressive, and these are the three that are going to be more amenable to most micrographic surgery, are morpheiform, infiltrative, and micronodular basal cells. The big difference between Mohs and general excision is two things. Number one, the cure rate. Your cure rate in Mohs is typically 98 to 99%. The reason that there's even a 2% cure rate uh, or recurrence rate is typically it's because young practitioners are coming out into practice. Also, this includes some of the people who may not be fellowship trained in reading the slides. Um, and that's where you get that 2%. I've done a retrospective study. I do a retrospective study at the end of every single year that I, I operate. And in the last 13,300 cases, I have a, a recurrence rate, I think, of 0.1%. And I think it's, it's really it's uh, two patients who had such extensive squamous cells. One was a recurrent squamous cell that I treated on the scalp, and the second one was a primary squamous cell on the scalp, but the gentleman had so much actinic damage. So you can see the cure rates can be extremely high. The second advantage is conservation of normal tissue. So you're preserving anatomical tissue. And uh, there's a big difference in how much tumor uh, tissue, or how much uh, surrounding tissue is removed in comparison of Mohs versus general excision. Second, the last thing that's important for me is after I complete the Mohs technique, I know that I can utilize any type of repair that I want to give the best cosmetic function and best cosmesis as well as functional repair. And that for me is the most important thing. So I can perform a flap, I can perform a graft, I can do anything that I need to, I can do a delayed flap, and we'll see some of those in just a few minutes. A lot of people ask, well, what's the big difference, you know? What's, what's really the difference? I'm sending it out to the pathologist. What the pathologist is doing is you're doing this bread loafing. You take a section here, a representative section there, a representative section there. What you see is sometimes this tumor that's actually positive is going more lateral. And that's where you're seeing some of these recurrence rates. With most, the most technique, you're actually examining all of the deep section. So it's more of a tangential, tangential section that's going to be occurring. Mohs micrographic surgery is named after the gentleman by the name of Frederick Mohs. In the 1930s, he was doing a uh, mouse model or rat model where he was injecting uh, zinc chloride paste. At that time, the zinc chloride was able to preserve the, the cellular structure, so you can immediately put a little nummy medicine and you can take that structure off and you can look at it underneath the microscope right away. And this happens to be ideal for skin cancer since these tend to be having, most tend to have contiguous growth and you can easily cut a flat section. So in, the 30, in 1936, when, when Frederick Mose was still a medical student, he talked about this technique, and then as he became a general surgeon, he started utilizing this technique in patients in Wisconsin. Back at that time, what they were doing is they were painting a zinc chloride paste on the patient 24 hours in advance. The patient would fly into Wisconsin. They would stay overnight at a hotel that was attached to the university. And then the next day, they would take a section. The advantage you can look for complete clear, clearing of tumor. And they did a retrospective study in 1976 where he saw that the cure rate was 99%. The disadvantage, one, you have to stay at least 24 hours in advance because you have to come and put this chloride paste on. Number two, it's very painful. In 53, he actually filmed a live patient taking out a micro, uh, excuse me, a pigmented basal cell on the lower eyelid. And at that time, he started experimenting with this fresh uh, frozen te uh, technique that we utilize today. And we'll show you some examples of this. It's simple. It's, simple to, it's similar to a general excision where you're going to infiltrate with some lidocaine. Typically, most people use a curette to debulk the major tumor and see where the borders may be. And then you're going to take approximately two millimeter margins around what you can see. 
the tissue is then excised at a 45 degree angle. And this is vital, and we're gonna show you in just a second why. So here's the curetting stage, and you can see on a patient himself, the curetting is done. And then the marks that we put on here are the borders of where we need to take approximately two millimeters around what we see with the naked eye. This happens to be a recurrent basal cell on the left upper cutaneous lip. At the 45 degree angle, it's, it's removed. And the reason for that's so important is because that tissue, when it's taken at 45 degree angles, is gonna be laid flat onto a slide. So you can see all of the deep margin as well as the lateral aspects. The tissue is gonna be then inked, so we make a little map for ourselves, similar to a clock face, so you can see where the tumor is remaining. And then they'll be stained with hematoxylin and, and eosin. The advantage again, 100% of the full surgical margin is gonna be examined. That's the beauty of this. So here's the same example in this gentleman. And what you can see is this dashed line happens to be our dark ink and the, I'm sorry, the circles happen to be the dark ink and the uh, dashed line happens to be the red ink. And so it's marked black and red. So then we can go back and examine this tissue. The tissue is then put into the cryostat and then it's gonna be uh, cut. And let me just show you an, an example. This is our cartoon model. So that's the debulking of the tumor. You can see this is the tumor itself. This is tumor itself. We're gonna take approximately two millimeters around there. The reason we're making these hash marks is to give us orientation when we go back and look under the microscope. We also make a map with this and we're gonna see that in just a second. So the tumor is removed. It's gonna be, here's the 45 degree angles it was taken at. It's gonna be cut into four sections. And because of that 45 degree angle, we're gonna be able to lay down the slide, lay down the tissue onto a slide and examine all of the edges as well as the deep margin. The inking is arbitrary. So the blue ink and the red ink is arbitrary. So this blue ink here, I'm gonna use as my, my vertical representation. So if I'm saying this is 12 o'clock, I know that's gonna be my blue ink. If I'm looking at three o'clock, that's gonna be my red ink. And this is gonna allow me to go back and see exactly where the tumor is if I have to take another section. In this particular example, you can see slide one, there's still some tumor left. The reason it's flipped is we're gonna look at the deep margin as it's cut. So here's the cutting of the slide, and you'll see sectioning is taken from the deepest portion of the tissue that was examined. So this is the portion that's going towards the muscle, and it's placed onto a slide. And so this is piece number one here. In just a second, you're gonna see piece number two, so you can see a comparison. Now, in this particular example, you can see that on piece number one, there's still some tumor left on the peripheral margin. So instead of taking a big cut or a big whack around this whole thing, we're gonna take a one to two millimeter sliver just around this side that we can see. In this gentleman that we showed you previously, you can see where the, the red marker here is where tumor is remaining. So we're gonna take some just around there, and you can see, I'm sorry, it's out of focus. We're gonna take a little sliver there, a little sliver here, a little sliver here. That's taken out there, it's put into the cryostat, and then it's examined again. And so similar, we're doing another cartoon. We're taking a little piece more here that's gonna be removed, and it's gonna be laid onto a slide again. In this particular example, there's gonna be a little bit remaining just in the middle, and so that's why we're gonna take one more piece. I'm gonna fast forward through this. And you can see, in just a second, you're gonna see that there's, there's tumor remaining right here. So there's a residual tumor, I don't know if you can see it here, and we're gonna take that little sliver, and on this third stage, all the tumor is removed. So let's see what it looks like in vivo. Has, has anybody, have a lot of people in here seen Mohs surgery or worked with Mohs surgeons? 
So a significant amount, okay, that's great. That makes it much easier, so this is boring, we'll move on. This is the, the morpheiform basal cell that was taken out on a patient. And you can see where I marked just a one millimeter or two millimeter margins around there. We're gonna take a little piece around this young lady. And here's the 45 degree angle, and this is what's the, the most important part. Have you guys seen how it gets cut onto to a slide? Let's fast forward to that then, okay? This is kind of boring. We're gonna uh, move here. What we did is we took out that piece, we bisected it, we looked at our map, and what we found is there's a little bit of inflammation on section number two, and then we marked it similarly on her again to show you where we're gonna take a tiny little piece again right there. And with this, it's cleared. So you can see the microscope, there's absolutely no tumor remaining. With that, especially on an area such as the ear, we can reconstruct any which way we want to prevent any kind of deformity. And in this case, we chose to use a rhombic flap. This is the rhombic flap in place. This is what it looks like on the front of the ear. And if everything goes well, you have a happy patient. Here's one more example. This is a recurrent basal cell times two on the, on the forearm. And the important part is not taking it out, but I just wanted to show you how we ink it. So these are our inks right here, and you can see where the blue ink is gonna go on the superior portion of the, of the tissue that was taken out. The red ink is gonna go on the inferior portion. That's gonna be placed in. Since you guys have already seen most, we'll fast forward through this as well. And you can see the representation of, of where my diagram is. So this is piece nine, 10, 11, nine, 10, and 11. So let's see how it's actually cut. This is Alyssa, she's one of our superstars. She's our histotechnician extraordinaire, and you can see in vivo how it's done. What she's done so far, she's placed it onto a block and she's gonna place it into our cryostat here and then the microtome, the actual cutting piece is right here on this edge. And you'll see, we've, I've slowed it down a little bit and she's showing you the epidermis. So that's the epidermal edge right there. And she goes at a pretty good clip. So now, now she got to an area where she's actually getting 100% of the deep margin as well as all the edges, the peripheral edges, and she's able to put it onto a slide. And you can see where it's getting put right on that slide. You can just see it for a second and there's too much glare, but I'll show you how she gets the next piece. So this is how we look at a slide. She's able to make uh, four or five sections per slide so we can look at everything. As she's going deeper into the block, so this is the second piece that she just took off, that's going more towards the epidermis. It's going more superficial. So you can see there's two pieces right there. She does that one more time. And then let's ask ourselves, what are the indications for most surgery? You can use it for the basic tumors, basal cell, squamous cell. We have been using it more successfully with lentigo maligna, sometimes melanoma in situ. In terms of invasive uh, melanoma, I don't, there's no significant advantage in cure rate. One of the pioneers in lentigo maligna and melanoma in situ is David Broadlin and uh, John Zatelli out of Pittsburgh. There's other types of tumors that you can use it for as well, DFSP, extra mammary pagets. I don't know, these aren't as common that you're gonna see, but uh, you will see one or two cases a year typically in most dermatology offices. So certain areas that I particularly get referred for is recurrent tumors, tumors in areas of high risk, and then the more invasive type tumors. So some of the things that I ask patients are, what was your previous surgical history? What's the location of the tumor? What's the pathology that's involved? And that kind of gives me an idea, should I be doing Mohs or should I not be doing Mohs? Uh, some of the other things that we look for, is the patient immunocompromised? 
If they're in any way immunosuppressed, then one of the things you need to realize is that they're going to have more aggressive tumors. I just biopsied somebody yesterday who had a squamous cell that's going to be invasive into the tragus. So typically, for squamous cell, you can wait up to three, four weeks if you really need to. Because he's an immunocompromised patient, he's been a renal transplant uh, for, I think, 12 years now. I know this is going to be a much, much more aggressive tumor, and so I've already scheduled them for Monday. So those type of people you have to really kind of encourage to get into to see the, the uh, surgeon or the Mohs surgeon. In terms of large tumors, typically these have been growing for a long period of time. Most tumors that are greater than two centimeters in size, I do uh, perform Mohs on, or I recommend most people refer to Mohs. Those that are, have those ill-defined margins, sometimes there's just an erythematous plaque, and you wonder how far is that going to actually invade to. Those are other types of uh, tumors that we recommend. This happens to be a tumor that was largely ignored, and it was a micronodule or BCC. You can see the final defect, and then we put an allograft in place here. Some other indications, previous surgery. So is it recurrent after an excision or a cryosurgery? Is there any residual that's remaining after an excision? Uh, certain areas will have more clinical, uh, subclinical spread. That includes especially the pinna and the, the nasal tip. And especially for the nasal tip, they're tricky areas. A lot of people will still do, still do excisions. I used to do some excisions on it, and I would do a comparison between the excision versus going back and doing Mohs. And what you find is in between those two cartilage plates, there's a lot of uh, uh, deeper invasion that goes into place. Some of these are in the embryonic fusion plates. So you'll see the preauricular, the retroauricular sulcus. You can see the nasolabial fold and the filtrum. Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, this is the medial canthus and then the filtrum. These particular areas tend to have much, much more invasion than what's clinically present. So those, for me, are almost always recommended for most micrographic surgery. And if you, there was an article that came out in 2004, it was the beginning of 2004, I believe it was January, uh, written by John Zatelli, doing a uh, prospective study on how many of these tumors are remaining after general excision. And the cure rate with this is only about 60% to 64%. So that means 40% are coming back in these areas. Those, those tend to be more aggressive. The H zone of the face, they tend to represent higher uh, uh, recurrence rates. That includes the lateral canthus and uh, the preauricular area as well, like we discussed. Other areas. It's also sometimes important to have tissue preservation. If we're talking about the ear, if we're talking about the eyelids, those tend to be a little bit more uh, uh, amenable for most surgery. Another area, fingers, fingernails, subungual uh, plate. You're looking at where we have a lot of squamous cells that we see. The glands uh, in the, the mid-90s, late-80s, we used to do full penectomies, and now these people are able to save their, their uh, organs, you know? So it's, it's important to know. Oculoplastic literature, the most recent literature that's been out there for the past couple years, only recommends Mohs micrographic surgery in conjunction with their, their reconstruction uh, because the cure rate is so much more significant and there's much more preservation of tissue. Here's one example. The histological uh, subtypes are important. If it's a micronodular uh, type of basal cell, if it's a morpheiform or infiltrated basal cell, these tend to be much, much more invasive. John Zatelli did a study which showed that their subclinical spread is approximately 7.2 millimeters. That's on average. So we're talking about bigger tumors here. Here's one example of a micronodule basal cell. And this gentleman, he presented, he's a typical vet. He came in and he said, Doc, you know, it's only been there for a couple months. I said, well, it's possible, but uh, not likely. And this one happened to be very aggressive. It's uh, because of the, the tumor's pathology. And this was the final defect. 
And what you're looking at here is you're actually looking at the nasal septum on this side. You're looking at turbinates right there. So with this, I, I did uh, clear him in the, in the office, but I also had OR time booked, and we covered this with, uh, with several flaps. Morpheiform basal cell, just so you have an idea. This is typical nodular basal cell. This is the type that I, you can easily EDNC or do a, a, a surgical excision for. Morpheiform is much more tricky, and it'll show these little strings, these little fibers that don't even look like basal cell, and that's why they have the subclinical spread. Here's one example. Didn't look like a big tumor, but this was the final defect. Perineural invasion is another reason that we recommend uh, certain people to go to Mohs surgery. And uh, a lot of times, even with the perineural invasion, although we get the tumor out, we still recommend adjuvant radiation. Here's an example of a 58-year-old gentleman who had this lesion on his forehead. At first, it was treated with cryosurgery. Then it was treated with an excision. And five months later, it came back. And all it looked like was a hypertrophic scar. So the general dermatologist performed a biopsy, revealed some squamous cell, came to see us, the patient delayed a little bit, came to see us about a, a month later, and what he discovered is he had a very, very aggressive tumor. The important thing to remember here, this is a 1.6 centimeter by 3.0 centimeter initial tumor. The final defect was 3.8 centimeters by 8 centimeters involving the uh, periosteum. So I did take a section of the periosteum off to check and make sure there's nothing in there. Uh, there was marked perineural involvement, so this gentleman was, and he's a young guy, he's 48. Uh, he is followed with uh, post-op uh, radiation and has done very, very well since that time. He's tumor-free for uh, nine years now. So one of the, the indications here, size, histology, the uh, location, and he had previous treatment. Another example, this is a young lady. She's in her, I think, 38 or 39 if I, when I operated. And you can see, you can barely see anything. And originally, actually, what happened is she came for a second opinion. There was a dermatologist in our area who said, oh, you know, I could just cut this out. It's not a big deal. It's probably an early tumor. Unfortunately, this did leave a significant defect. But the nice part is because we know that it's all out with the, with the Mohs technique, for here, we're able to do a, a little bit more advanced reconstruction and get her back in a, into shape. Another example. This is what a lot of the morpheiform basal cells will look like. It's not too big. It's not an outgrowth. It's more of an uh, invasive-type tumor that's, that's underneath the skin. And it led to a defect of this size. So you can see we can easily put it back together. It's not a big deal. This is a recurrent basal cell. This one was treated by excision three times, once with a dermatologist, twice with plastics, and then the plastic surgeon actually asked me to get involved with this one, and I, had to, I coordinated care with him. And you can see the final defect. So the subclinical spread was significant. It's beyond even what we drew here. This is a young lady who had this basal cell was treated first with, uh, um, they thought it was superficial basal cell, they treated with liquid nitrogen. She's an elderly woman, she's 92, uh, but she's otherwise in very good health. And she says, you know, I just don't like this growth. It keeps growing, it keeps bleeding on my pillow. The nursing home gets upset with me. So this was the final defect, very aggressive. Uh, we offered to do a more advanced reconstruction. We actually just put a skin graft on there, and she healed up very well. She does have a little bit of notching, but she said, you know, I can live with this. I don't want to have any more uh, major reconstruction done. This is a 41-year-old woman who I'd operated on. She's a, referred by an outside dermatologist. I operated on right here. You can see just a tiny, tiny bit of tenting when she smiles. But we had, uh, it was a... The final de defect was 1.2 centimeters by 1.5 centimeters. So she healed up nicely. This time she came in and she was referred for this tiny little spot here. This was a um, uh, micronodular type basal cell. 
and the final defect involved this. But this is two months out, and she's going to continue having improvement. And we actually went back and we, we did a little dermabrasion and hid that graft even better, so she's very happy. This poor young lady, she had a history of XRT. So that's one of the things I do ask my patients, especially if they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s. They may have had radiation therapy for acne back in the 70s, and this tends to lead to much, much more aggressive tumors and multiple tumors at a time. This particular young lady, she came in for three uh, um, recurrent basal cells, and you can see some of the signs of the defect. If you're looking at the lip, it really did not look like that much. And uh, this is one where I was fooled. I had not booked OR time, so I, I actually brought her back the next day and, and repaired this. Here's another example. We knew this was going to be an aggressive tumor based on the location. You could see in that nasal sulcus there and involved all of the, uh, uh, most of the nasal tip. Another aggressive tumor. This gentleman had been treated at the VA for several years with liquid nitrogen. He tried Kerak, he tried Effidex. He said, oh, it just keeps scaling. I said, let's just take a biopsy and see what it is. The overall size appeared to be more than two centimeters, and the final defect uh, was this. So the good news on this, there was no perineural invasion, and we were able to save the entire facial nerve. So we dissected out the facial nerve trunk and uh, preserved that. One more, this is the, uh, the left temple. So you can see that sometimes they can be a little bit more aggressive. This one we actually got out in one stage. And what you're looking at is an aggressive squamous cell. This came up uh, literally over um, a six-week period. I had seen him myself about two months before, operated on something else. No evidence of any tumor, but you can see it's an aggressive tumor. So how often does subclinical spread occur? Right? Do we really need to refer everything to Mohs surgery? Definitely not. But in, out of uh, 1,100 cases there were two, uh, that were treated with Mohs surgery, 244 of these required at least three stages to take out the whole, the whole tumor. What are some of the predictors that may indicate that you should send for Mohs? The preoperative size was greater than 2.5 centimeters. The, uh, the histological subtype, recurrences. Basal cells on the nose almost always tend to be a little bit more aggressive than they appear. And another correlation that we had not realized before Batra published a study is just the, uh, the age group of the patient. If it, the age being less than 35, and some people are saying even less than 40, they recommend almost everybody to go for Mohs surgery. Certain types of tumors, such as, such as microcystic adnexal carcinoma and DFSP, these are very well treated with the Mohs technique. Uh, these are smaller numbers, you know, the, the max, they're just not that common. So the case series was only 11 cases, but there were no recurrences. And typically what you have to take out is about 2.5 centimeters to 3 centimeters if you're doing a wide local excision. Here's an example of a MAC that was just reconstructed. I, I did not have a pre-op picture, unfortunately. Here's a DFSP. You can see the typical recurrence rate is about 11%. Uh, and this one has been recurrent three times. It was operated first by general surgery, then by plastics, and then got referred to, to us uh, by the dermatologist. So we took out the whole sectioning. You can see this is where the tumor remained. It was right in this area here. And we were able to see the pathology here. It's a very aggressive looking tumor. But because we know the tumor is out, we were able to do a nice rhombic flap and put it into place. And uh, this young lady has done very well. Some of the other tumors, melanoma. It's not the conventional way of treating melanoma. The cure rates are almost exactly the same, and the reason for that is when you do the frozen section, you can't quite see all the melanoma cells that are, that are in that frozen section. 
In certain areas with lentigo maligna, where there's a lot of subclinical spread, I do recommend it, and I have done it on the face mainly, head and neck area. On the forearms and body, I, I really don't do it. So you can see, even though it didn't appear to be a very big tumor, this is post-MOS, and then I took one more layer to send it off for permanent sectioning. So what are the advantages? Tumor clearance, tissue sparing, it's cost-effective. The disadvantage is, of course, it's a little bit more labor-intensive. You need to have a contiguous tumor. There's going to be waiting between the, the cases. Uh, some of the limitations, when we're going into deeper wounds, uh, we've had a lot of recurrences of squamous cell and basal cell on the skull, on the scalp. And what we've seen is we've actually had to take out the bone plate. So sometimes uh, this is a little bit harder to interpret. So we'll take it down. We'll get the lateral margins clear. We'll take off this periosteum, and then I'll usually refer to uh, neurosurgery for deeper uh, uh, invasive removal. The other limitations, sometimes patients are, are not able to tolerate the anesthesia for as long as you'd like. And in, in all 10,000 cases that were examined, only 0.15% were not completed. And these are actually my cases. Uh, one was, uh, most of this was due to invasion of bone and sometimes into the, the cavities, such as the orbital rim, as well as the external auditory meatus. Cure rates are high. You already know that. The difference in cure rates, you can get an idea. Uh, recurrence rate with MOS is approximately 1%. With an excision, it could be anywhere from 7% to 10% on average. Let's go on to what's the newer things that are out there. One of the things sometimes people ask me, especially plastic surgeons and general surgeons, is how safe is Mohs? You're doing this big technique inside your office. It's extremely safe. There's only a complication rate of 1.5%. That includes everything. That includes your post-op infections, your, your uh, bleeders. It includes uh, um, any graft necrosis, any, any flap necrosis. So very rare to have any major problems there. And just to give you an idea of some of the reconstructions that can be done. All these are the reconstructions that can be done in the office. I'm sure most of you guys are doing this in your own office as well. I'm going to skip forward. And, you know, sometimes people ask, you know, they had this big tumor. Are they going to be deformed for the rest of their life? You can, you can see where the tumor was. But if you're looking at how we got to it, it was a significant defect. What you're looking at is this is actually a through-and-through -through defect. This is gauze that's underneath there. And so we were able to reconstruct this by putting in a delayed flap and taking it down about three weeks later. Here's another example. And same thing, because we know that the tumor is completely cleared, we can do a little bit more fancy reconstruction to get it back into place. Here's an example of a gentleman. The scar is right here. But from face on, you can, from head on, you can barely see it. And this was a, a relatively aggressive tumor. Same thing, it's in one of those embryonic fusion plates. This is a case where even with Mohs, we could not save the, the ALR rim, but we are able to reconstruct afterwards. So you can see even three months later, she's, she's a happy camper. So, you know, I'm a surgeon. To cut is to cure, but that's not the future. Let's see what the future holds. In the 21st century, we're trying to find something that's going to be more minimally invasive, something that's pharmacologically oriented. We're looking at immune modulators, gene modulation, and other delivery systems that may help these patients where they can avoid surgery. One of the topicals that we use commonly now is amiquimod. I'm sure everybody's had some experience with this, if not a lot of experience. And the way that it works, as you know, is the cytokine and interferon uh, induced 
into that area to cause that inflammation. One of the things to remember if you're not that familiar with it is it can light up a lot of satellite lesions. So even though you're treating one specific area, the patient will come and say, you know what, my whole chest is red. And I saw somebody in, while I was on call for, for another general dermatologist, and they had this young lady putting on Aldera on the chest. It was the right thing to do. But she ended up having inflammation on the entire chest, including the breast, and had some uh, third-degree burns from it. So you just have to be a little bit careful. The question a lot of people ask is, how effective is it, and how, uh, how many times do you have to dose it per month, and how many months do you have to dose it for? So there's a lot of studies that have been done. In 2001, there was a multi-center study that was done in Australia and New Zealand, and they used various dosaging, twice a day, once a day, once every other day, twice every other day. And you can see the cure rates are a little bit higher if you're doing it twice a day for seven days a week, but the biggest problem is most people can't tolerate that. So that's what we're worried about. What you're looking at, the major side effects is the erythema, the scabbing, the flaking. Most people, even though it looks terrible and looks eroded, they're not complaining of a lot of pain, which is amazing. They do complain of pruritus. Here's an example of a pretreatment uh, superficial basal cell. It was 0.9 centimeters by 1.3 centimeters, wanted to avoid surgery. This is two weeks later. This is a nice response. It's not a brisk response by any means, but it is a good response. This was being used once a day. The only complaint was a little bit of itchiness and a little bit of tenderness. This is at the end of treatment. This is at the end of six weeks that the, the treatment occurred. There were no rest periods. And you can see six weeks after they discontinued it, everything looks great and histological clearing. What we found over time is really if you're using it once a day, seven days a week for approximately eight weeks, you're getting a cure rate of approximately 88%. This is quite comparable to excision as well as uh, to EDNC. Um, so it's a, it's a nice thing. It's mainly used on superficial basal cells. We have tried it. I'm going to show you a study with, uh, with nodular basal cells. People continue to, to explore this realm. Can we use it on nodular basal cells? Can we use it on squamous cells? How invasive these tumors can we, can we go with? Can we use it on melanoma? We've tried all of this. The nodular basal cells, the biggest problem is getting the, the imiquimod to be absorbed into the system to bring in the inflammatory response to that area. And they've seen that if you're using it seven, seven days a week, it does have a cure rate of up to 71%. So significantly lower than excision, significantly lower than EDNC. And here's just a, the efficacy study you can see. In cases where they were using it once a day for seven days a week, there was not a significant difference, uh, even if you use it for a longer period of time, when you're comparing six weeks to, eight, to 12 weeks. Most people in our area use it for approximately uh, eight weeks at a time, once a day, and you can, depending on toleration. I usually use it uh, seven days a week. My partner uses it five days a week. Here's an example of superficial basal cell. This is at week six. This is a once-a-day treatment. There's no holiday at all, and patient did very well. What else? You can use it for Bowen's. You can use it for the superficial squamous cell. The biggest common problem that I found when I've tried it with superficial basal cell, it's very erosive and it's very tender. It's usually used on, on the legs. And you can see an example here where it's used once a day. Here's at one week. You can see this is a brisk response uh, occurring very quickly at six weeks after treatment was discontinued. 
I typically use it for my basal cell neva syndrome. I use it for those people who have multiple superficial basal cells. I use it in, in cosmetically sensitive areas. I also, uh, in certain patient populations, young females, if I can try this to either shrink the tumor or completely get rid of the tumor, I use it uh, quite frequently there. I have used it also with, uh, of course, actinic keratosis. I'll use it in terms of treating it uh, five days a week for eight weeks for AK clearing. It has a similar side effect profile to the Kerak and Effidex. That's my biggest problem with it. We treat a lot of people who are in the media in Houston. Uh, when I was in, in New York, we treat a lot of people who are in advertising and marketing. And so sometimes it's hard. People can't take that time off where they're bright red, or even if it's not painful for them, where they're so inflamed. I do use it a lot in terms of shrinking tumors. I have used it in recurrent melanoma in situ and, uh, and um, uh, lentigo maligna. This is a gentleman who he's got global actinic keratosis. He's in the public eye a lot of times. He couldn't afford to have two weeks downtime or one week downtime with sutures in place. And so we've used it here. We treated the entire nose, treated the glabella and the forehead, and he did very, very well. <coughs> Excuse me. I do it as prophylaxis for a lot of people who have had XRT treatment in the past as well. And that's something to just to, to consider as part of your armamentarium. The other topicals, of course, you all know about is Effidex and Kerak. Kerak, most people are prescribing these days. Theoretically, there's less of a inflammatory response. I haven't seen much of a, uh, of a decreased inflammatory response. Some people will do it once a day. Some people will do it twice a day. I use it usually three times a week for those people who are, are in the public eye. And they do get a nice inflammatory response. You may, not have to, you may have to use it for a longer period of time instead of treating only for four weeks or six weeks. Sometimes I use it for three months or two months. But you can get a clearing of up to 88% of these actinic keratoses. Some of the newer things that are out there, you all have heard of the, the uh, anti-inflammatories, diclofenac, solarase is already in production. There's one that's coming uh, out on the market now. It's still in the, in the phase two trials. It's called Sullendac. Have you guys heard of this name yet? It just came out in, in one of the journals this past week. Um, and this is, they're doing a combination of doing this anti-inflammatory. This is usually an oral anti-inflammatory. It's been in the market for 25 years. And what they're doing is they're, they're putting it on the patient one hour before they treat with a peroxide, a hydrogen peroxide. And it seems to allow that hydrogen peroxide to come in and, and uh, damage those, those precancerous cells or cancerous cells. They've seen approximately 60% resolution. It's still a small study. There's only 20 patients that were done so far but it's something of the future. Other things that we can use, the retinoids. How many people are actually using retinoids in their practice for actinic keratoses? So good number. So probably about 30% of you guys are using it. That's great. I think it's a very effective treatment. Uh, it's an inexpensive treatment, especially for people who don't have insurance. Tezerotene we've used in the past in the VA. We're doing a study right now with tretinoin. Uh, we're doing it at the v for application for actinic keratosis. For superficial basal cell, I have not seen any effect. I don't know if somebody has any anecdotal um, effects for, with the superficial basal cell. Actinic keratosis, after we do a spray and we start the retinoids again, we do see a decrease. That in combination with sunscreen, of course. Uh, we're trying a new study right now. It's just coming up, um, utilizing PDT with tretinoin, seeing if that may help... Uh, activate the levulonic acid and, and help the levulonic acid penetrate a little bit deeper and then activating that with the pulse diet, uh, with the uh, light therapy. 
There's one that's, that's in a study right now if you want to refer any patients, and it's parallel alcohol, and it's a topical that they're, they're applying on, and it's going to be used, they're, they're predicting for six to eight weeks, so there's a clinical study going on right now. If anybody's in the D.C. area or the Arizona area, you can refer your patients. Photodynamic therapy. A lot of people have light boxes. How many people have light boxes? Holy cow, okay. So it's a big difference than uh, four, four or five years ago, I gave a talk at the Mose conference, and I asked how many people have, have light boxes. There were two people that raised their hand out of 780 people. And now almost everybody has a light box. So you guys have good, good uh, therapy with this. We have a light box. We use it frequently. My biggest complaint about it is I don't think it does as effective of a, of a treatment alone compared to when you're treating it with, with uh, liquid nitrogen plus putting them back in the light box. Uh, we use a blue U. We use the typical uh, levulonic acid stick. I have not seen great effect with superficial, uh, with Bowen's disease. Some superficial basal cells, we've seen some effect, but I usually use it in combination with Aldera or something else. Um, we are trying a study right now where we're using the retinoic acid, um, or, sorry, retinoids plus PDT, and we're seeing a little bit more effectiveness in terms of uh, long-term AK clearing. Uh, the major problem with the levulonic stick is it doesn't penetrate into these deep, deep actinic keratoses, those hypertrophic AKs and some of these other superficial BCCs and, and squamous cells. One of the tricks that we're trying to use is DMSO, it's dimethyl sulfoxide, and that's supposed to allow the skin barrier to be penetrated a little bit easier with the levulonic stick, and they saw a cure rate of 84 to 95% in basal cells and 80% cure rate in squamous cells. What's the major conclusion? It's effective, it's another arm of treatment. I think I use it in combination more frequently than anything else. And uh, for squamous cells, I'm not that comfortable myself because these can be more aggressive. I'm not comfortable using it in primary squamous cells. Sometimes in superficial basal cells, I will use it to shrink a tumor along with the Aldera. <coughs> Excuse me. How many of you guys know about Metvix? It's been out on the market, so two people are using it. Do you have the red light? Okay, you haven't used it. Are you using it, here? No. Uh, this is, it came out on the market approximately six or seven months ago. It, there's a study that's being sponsored right now by Galderma, if you want to enroll any patients, where they're utilizing this and see, they use a different wavelength of light. They use a red light to see if it activates. And theoretically, it's supposed to allow deeper penetration. We're, we're, in, the, we're in that trial right now in, in our own office, so we're going to see how that works, and hopefully I can give you an update in the future. Interlesional interferon. So these are for people who can't tolerate surgery, whether their medical condition doesn't allow them or they may, they may be uh, uh, demented of some type. Some of the contraindications, of course, are the hypersensitivity to interferon, and the contraindications also include those sclerosing and micronodular basal cells. It's not effective. The reason that we think it works is the basal cell carcinomas express this CD95 ligand, and that's what the uh, interferon alpha actually targets. In a study of 140 patients, there's a 67.1% response. The major side effects are those fever and flu-like symptoms. So it's an adjuvant therapy. It's something to think about. Uh, personally, I, I, I've used it on a, on a couple of patients that had very aggressive basal cells. Um, and one person I used it on in addition to adjuvant uh, radiation therapy as well. 
If you're using a combination, there's not a significantly improved rate of clearing. So it's still 73.3% versus 67%. So it's not a huge difference there. Has a much lower cure rate. That's the bottom line. ECT, has anybody seen this? It's, it's interesting. It's where you inject bleomycin and then you administer micropulses into that same area where the injection was occurred. And the bleomycin is supposed to penetrate the cell membrane, allowing the, uh, the electric current to come in there. Of course, it's contra uh, contraindicated in, uh, in uh, people with pacemakers. But this is another therapy that might be used in the future for people who can't tolerate surgery, for mainly primary basal cells. I have used it in, a ba in two basal cell nevoid syndromes just to see what the effect is. And, and we found that it, it cleared up about 60% of them. And what else is here? Good. That's still preliminary. So what's out there in the future? We have thermosurgery. Uh, we have the... We're, we're, right now, we're utilizing a fractionated CO2. I know that's the hot word that's out there, right? Fractional CO2 or deep CO2. It's similar to the way that the CO2 laser works, where it's an ablative-type laser. So just like cryosurgery or EDNC works, it's the same thing. It's ablating those superficial basal cells, ablating that, uh, that uh, Bowens-type disease. It has worked. We're in a clinical study with it right now in our office where we're doing it and we're waiting for the six-week period to come up so we can do biopsies and we'll have numbers for you out in, uh, in the general population very soon. Confocal or laser capture microscopy. Has anybody played with this? Who's in, who's in San Diego? There's, a, there's a Brian Yang is the one who's doing the major research on this right now. And it's, it's a neat technique. The problem is it's not uh, that easy to read that, uh, that microscopy to see where it is. And it's supposed to indicate how wide the tumor goes and maybe even how deep it's supposed to go to. There's one more thing that wasn't listed on here, and there's a company that's coming out in the next eight months with a, it's similar to the full body scans that we used to do with the, with the machine, and it takes a picture, and from that picture, this one actually has a handpiece, and from that handpiece, it compares it against its database. It's coming out of Italy. And comparing with the database, it shows, is this a melanoma, is this a basal cell, is this a squamous cell, is this something that actually needs to be biopsied or not? In the phase two studies of 500 patients that were done, it has a accuracy rate of 98%. The general dermatologist had an accuracy rate of 88%. So it's a 10% difference. So it was impressive. So that's something that's exciting that's coming out as well. Uh, we've talked about the pet, you know, we've seen PET scanners. Everybody's talking about it this day and age. Really, PET scans, all they're doing is just seeing where the inflammation is. So I don't think it's that accurate in terms of treating the basal cells. There's anti-angiogenic factors, so we're trying to uh, destroy the blood vessels that are coming to feed the tumor, and then hopefully we're looking into gene therapy. But still, we go back to the same old thing. What's the best treatment? Prevention. Prevention, prevention, prevention. We have a lot more things that we can offer these days, but, you know, I always recommend sunscreen. That's the first thing that I tell patients as they come in my door. It's the last thing I tell them before they leave. And that's it. Any questions that I can answer? Thank you guys for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, historically, I've used inflammation as a kind of benchmark when I'm using a MICMOD um, to see if I'm getting some efficacy. Exactly. But there was a recent clinical study reported that inflammation isn't necessarily That's your endpoint. And I wanted to hear what your experience was. And I, how I, I agree with you 100%. I look for that inflammation. I think if people are having a nice, brisk inflammatory response, nine times out of ten, it's actually the number is 88%. 
uh, the, there's three studies that just came out. There's one that was just published two months ago, and then there's a published study from two years ago talking about that inflammation. And uh, I still use that as one of my, my targets. I don't, the, the study that I know exactly which study you're mm -hmm. talking about, I don't think that's always correct. I think you need to have that inflammatory response. Um, what we're learning is that we need to wait about six weeks after the stopping of the therapy to see if there's anything left. And if you're concerned that there's anything left, then sometimes I'll give them that six-week holiday and I'll retreat again. And I've seen that to be effective because if you see anything lighting up, then I go to my second option. I'll go for excision or I'll do for an E, D, and C. Okay. Do you read biopsy? I do. Okay. At the, at, if, I, if I see it relight up, after the six weeks I'm, I put them back on it, I will read biopsy. Or if I see anything that looks like a little bit of... Uh, extraneous inflammation, I will be biopsy. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I have a question. I have a patient who I see regularly, um, and the first time he came to me, he had 17 basal cell carcinomas all over his body, most of which are superficial, and I see him every two months, and I take off a minimum of five to six oh, each boy. time and treat them with CNC. Right. Um, is there anything in the literature, any reports of things you can do, kind of like what we do for precancers with um, Aldera, et cetera, those types of things for superficial basal cell? Like, can I treat part of his body with Aldera? You can, 100%. And I've done a lot of those. Uh, I do a certain area, like I'll do one side of the forehead or one half of the face or one the top portion of the chest. The question really is, is the, the body part. You have to see how can you get that aldera to be absorbed. And sometimes you may need to do it in combination with some with that peel. So sometimes I'll do a, a pretty heavy 30%, 35%, uh, even up to a 50% TCA peel on the arms. And then I'll have them start that aldera that evening. And uh, what we've seen is there's no increase in, in scarring or anything of that sort. But because the aldera is able to penetrate now, it'll come back and, and really take that off. And how often will you have them apply the Aldera for how long? I do, if it's something that's that aggressive, I will do it twice a day and I do it for, I check on them in two weeks to see if they're having a very brisk response. I call them usually within three or four days because that's about the time when you'll have those flu-like symptoms. And uh, I usually check them on at the two week period and then I check out them in six weeks to see how they're doing. And, and sometimes I still do that in combination. I'll, if I can't get the peel out, I will do a liquid nitrogen spray just to allow that uh, the skin to be damaged, and okay. the aldera will penetrate in. Great. Thank you. And one other question sure. kind of around that. Um, there's been reports in, um, in the literature on the use of isotretin for, like, hypertrophic LP patients for squamous cell prevention. Is there anything like that for BCC in this Not case? yet. Okay. Not yet. We're really looking into something that may target those BCCs. The isotretin I use, uh, I actually use Sotrate. Uh, I'm sorry, not sotrate. I use, um, why can't I think of the name? Soriotane. I use soriotane. I use it at a low dose of 10 milligrams. You know, obviously you can go up to 50 milligrams. So what I'll do is I will get them clear, especially for eruptive keratoacanthomas, acanthomas, and then I'll use it for uh, just a once a week dose of 10 milligrams, and people have been clear for a long, long period of time. As soon as you stop it, though, it comes back. Uh. Thank you. It was a great Thank talk. Um, I have a question on melanoma. When you excise a melanoma and you're going to do a follow-up, uh, do you have any recommendations for blood donations after a melanoma? I, you know, I haven't seen any contraindication, but I know at MD Anderson, which is in my backyard, they don't allow blood donation after melanoma or squamous cell, even if it's only a cutaneous squamous cell. So I don't think there's anything that's out in the literature. I've looked at this uh, for patients. I haven't seen anything out in the literature that proves that the melanoma is already in the bloodstream. I think they're more concerned, is there any kind of genetic uh, abnormality that may predispose certain people to the melanoma? Thank yeah. you. 
In a patient with numerous basal cells, whether nodular or superficial, um, and you've biopsied some of them in the past and you know they're basal cells and, and you want to use some Aldera on some of these, do you feel the need to biopsy every single one? Because I know some people say, well, you could miss an amelanotic melanoma, so you need to biopsy every single one, or can you just go ahead and just treat them with Aldera and and uh, see how they do? That, that's a great question. We get into a debate about this a lot. I personally, if I see somebody who has multiple, multiple melanoma, uh, uh, excuse me, multiple, multiple basal cells, I will start the treatment. And if they're getting a nice inflammatory response, it looks like the other inflammatory responses, I'm not that worried about it. If I see something that doesn't clear, I will go back and biopsy it. But that's, again, with my two-week visit and my six-week visit. So at the six weeks, if I see no clearing or something doesn't respond at all, I'm still going to go in and take a biopsy. Um, You'll see other people who say that you need to biopsy everything. I think in certain patients, those who have Gorlin syndrome, it's just it's impossible. I've seen two cases, uh, and we've reported both of these back to 3M, and now it's Graceway that's taking over the Aldera, uh, where it's a basal cell neva syndrome, who where they were putting the Aldera, they grew two squamous cells that were very, very aggressive. Hmm. So that's unusual. But same thing. The, the young lady, she came back at a one-month follow-up, and I looked at it, I said, you know, something doesn't look right. She said, yeah, this one hurts. Right? So I took a biopsy and it came back as a squamous cell. But it didn't make me, I think it just depends on your level of comfort with that patient. Um, if it's the first time I'm seeing somebody, I'm more likely to do more biopsies. If it's somebody who I've known for a year or two years and I know they continue to get these basal cells, I've seen it proven on my pathology reports, I'm more likely to treat them with Aldera. Yeah. Um, I just had a question as to how we can be the most helpful to our most surgeon. When we're taking our biopsies, um, a lot of times if I have something that's really small on the face, I'll take a photo of it or something. Sometimes we've had the issue where they're at the surgeons and they're, where is this thing? So, you know, I try to take a central piece and leave the margin. How how would you recommend we we do that? It's a a constant battle. You're exactly right. That's a great question to ask. One of the things that we've done, we've actually, uh, for people who refer to us on a a regular basis, I made just a little sticky, it's like a a tegaderm type, type thing, and I made a grid. And so that grid I give to the patient. Uh, or the, the dermatologist gives it a patient, and they mark which quadrant it's in. That's one of the neat things that they did. Second thing, a lot of dermatologists now are emailing me the picture before I even see the patient. Uh, there's another way that you can do it. It's a, like a triangulation-type method, and it's like using a clock face on that patient's face, right? And from here, you can say it's at the 9 o'clock position or the 10 o'clock position, this many centimeters away, and, that, and uh, you can triangulate it to the second landmark. So that's another way of doing it. The third way is sometimes if I come, you know, a lot of times the dermatologist will come back in and say, this is what you have, this is who you need to go see. What they'll do is they'll put a permanent marker on there, and I usually try to see that that patient the same day. And then the onus is on me then, because I need to take a picture, I need to mark exactly where it is. Yeah. Is it more helpful to take the central portion and leave the margin for you guys? That's very helpful. Okay. Very helpful. Or even if you just take one edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. For Mose, are you having patients stop anticoagulants, especially Coumadin? Not at all. I am not at all. Okay. I've had uh, in eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, I had a patient who actually had a a stroke while on the table who I hadn't stopped the the anticoagulant, but the the primary care doctor had. Right. And I called up and I said, listen, you know, the, the heart is the most important part. The brain is the most important part. For me, even if you have a little bit of hemostasis problems, it's not that big a deal. It's something have, that I can deal with. 
Yeah, we have more trouble trying to keep patients on it. Right. <laughs> I agree with you. Thank you. Can you comment on use of Aldera and Lentigo Maligna? Use with Aldera, I'm sorry? Lentigo Maligna. Yes. Uh, I don't know how commonly it's being used. How many people in, this, uh, in their offices are using that? Are there, is anybody? You are. Okay, good. So a lot of times it's used in academic institutions. I'm one of the few people in Houston that's still using it, but I've, had, I've played with it for, since uh, 1998 before it came out on the market uh, with the Aldera. What I'm seeing is that it will tend to light up the periphery. So I still use that as one of my, my criteria. I'll start them on the Aldera um, on, almost immediately following the, the biopsy report if they can't get right back to me. Um, if I think it's extensive or if I think it's a recurrence, I use it a lot uh, where I'm using it once a day for two, three, four weeks. A lot of times, if they have an inflammatory response, what will happen is I can kind of outline the margins. I still use my wood, wood slamp, though, to go back in and see if there's any subclinical spread. But that's helped significantly, especially in, in high-risk areas on the upper lip, on the, uh, 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 saw, the mucosal lower lip, I've used it where there were current uh, melanomas. And luckily on the last, uh, I have a handful. I have probably about 55 or 56 patients that I've done it on. And nobody's come back yet, knock on wood, in the last uh, 10 years. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's just another trick that you can use. OK. Thank you, guys. I appreciate your patience. I'm sorry, excuse me. One more question, if you don't mind. Um, I know the Levulon was approved with the blue light, which I believe is the 410 nanometer wavelength. Now, have you seen any other light sources and wavelengths that may be comparable to it? And, and There's supposed to be a 390 wavelength that's coming out. That's the red light that's going to be used with that uh, Metvix. Mm -hmm. um, and they're thinking it may be the light source, that it may be that's what's actually allowing that to penetrate a little bit deeper. It's similar to what's used for an extract laser okay. um, for psoriasis. And so we're wondering if that can, that can allow deeper penetration so we can get better clearing the AKs. That's out there. We've also used a pulse dye laser. Um, I used to only use it on the lip. And I would paint the Levulonic stick on there one hour in advance, and then I would hit it with the uh, pulse dye laser. I started using it more on the face, especially in areas where there's hypertrophic AKs, either the temples, frontal scalp, and uh, I'll do it in combination with something. First, I will curette a lot of these little spots. I'll have them come back in a week, paint the levulonic stick on there, and then I'll hit them with the pulse dye laser. Um, and I do it to a point where it does bruise. So this way, I know that it's going down, it's getting a deep tissue response, and uh, I've seen a little bit better penetration with that. Great, thank you. Sorry, I have one more question. Um, can you speak to your experience about using methotrexate interlesionally for eruptive keratokanthomas? And for, if you, for eruptive KAs? Eruptive KAs. I've done it in only 10 patients, okay. maybe 11 patients at the most. I haven't, I, I've seen some good effects. My biggest concern is um, on two people, I got significant tissue necrosis. And so I had a hard time with that. And I actually ended up having to put a skin graft in. I, I put a skin graft in. It cleared it up because I went back and I took a Mohs layer. There was nothing that was there. But uh, I did have to put a skin graft in. I'm more inclined to use a oral retinoid now okay. for the eruptive KAs. Um, are you talking about multiple multiples? Yeah, like once a month. Once a month, yeah. yeah this patient comes in with yeah. a new. So what, I, what I've found a lot of success with is I actually start them on the retinoid, probably about 25 milligrams 
uh, a seriatane uh, uh, per day, make sure the labs are okay, make sure they're, you know, most of these people are postmenopausal if they're women and they're older gentlemen anyway. And uh, once I clear everything up and there's a clearance for about three months, I'll drop them down to literally 10 milligrams uh, every day, then I drop to 10 milligrams every other day, and then I wean them down to 10, mil 10 milligrams a week. I have uh, probably about 30, 34 patients like that. How, over a period of how much time do you do this? It took, uh, for most of these people, six months on, on average. Okay. Six months. Some, a couple people took a year. Yeah. But it's, it showed nice clearance. Okay. The only problem is there was uh, two people who stopped, and immediately everything started growing back. So that was one of the things I learned from that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Any other questions I could answer? Thank you, guys. I appreciate your time. <laughs>